Let's pray together. Father, the words of that song that Corky and Irma played, open our eyes so that we might see. Lord, we, we ask and we would pray that that would be the desire of all our hearts. Father, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful truths that you have for us. Truths not that we conceive from what we see in creation around us, from what we hear from the media or desire to be as we would want reality to be, but rather, Father, truths as your word declares them. Father, because it's not but by your word that we are. In the beginning, you spoke all that is into existence. Father, and it's impossible for man to know you apart from your sovereign grace as you revealed yourself. For every other man-made religion begins with what is created and attempts to work its way to a concept of creator. But Father, you are wholly other than we are. And were we able to work our way to relationship with you, we wouldn't need you. We would be God. But you are God. So God, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see beautiful things that you have for us this morning in your word. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1844, for those of you who are historians, Alexander Dumas completed his now considered literary classic, The Count of Monte Cristo. And I would imagine that most all of us at some point in life have become familiar with this tale of young sailor Edmond Dantes, who is betrayed by his jealous friend Fernand Mondego for love of his fiancée, Mercedes. And desperate to seal Mercedes, not a car, but his woman from Dantes, Mondego conspires with a jealous crewmate, Donglar, and a crooked politician, Villefort. And together they have Dantes arrested on the man's wedding day and transferred to the Chateau d'If or the House of Screams. It's an island prison off the coast of France. Placed in solitary confinement, Dantes, as you recall the story, suffers for six years without ever knowing the reason for his incarceration. And he's driven mad by frustration and unanswered question. And Don says he's ready to give up all hope when he hears a scraping sound. And at first he attributes it to rats, it's a nasty pest with a constant presence in his prison cell, but the sound continues. And eventually he discovers it's coming from a fellow prisoner who's attempting to escape. Abbe Furia is a priest who's been imprisoned on the Chateau d'If for 12 years and digging to freedom for most of them. Convinced that he's tunneling towards the outer wall, Faria emerges in Dantes' cell, only to discover that all of his efforts for the past decade of digging have been pointed in the wrong direction. And at this point, Dantes is devastated, not simply because of his own circumstances, but because of Faria's failure. From, from Dantes' perspective, at this point, life has lost its purpose. However, much to his surprise, Faria is unfazed by his folly. He just re-enters his hole and invites Dantes to aid him, tunneling this time in the right direction. And Faria helps Dantes to see that while man cannot always control his circumstances, he can control his reaction to them. And Faria had made plans. He'd, he'd worked hard to place that little lime green silk thing into the bag, only to be misdirected to discover that what he pulls out was blue, right? He knew, he thought, what his future held, but the truth was vastly different. He didn't encounter Magicalena. 
he encountered a twist of fate. And over the next eight years, Faria and Dantes worked together only to have Faria's health fail right as they're preparing to escape and urging Dantes to go alone. Faria tests his fellow prisoner to see if he's learned anything during their time together. And to his deep satisfaction, as you recall, Dantes refuses, at which point Faria tells him about this treasure that was believed to be a myth. And Faria urges Dantes to use it for good, only for good and not for vengeance. Why? Because no one knows what the future holds. And so as with all great romantic novels, for those of you who are romantics in the end, Dantes gets his freedom, he gets his girl, the gold, all of his enemies are revenged as well as he's able to aid all his friends. And there's just something satisfying, isn't there? Something satisfying in stories such as this as they reflect the uncertainty of reality, but then they also offer us hope that our circumstances might work out like Dantes. I mean, we all appreciate the fact that the future is unknown, and like Dantes, our circumstances could change at any moment. I mean, there's not a one of us who would argue the fact that we can't predict exactly where we'll be 10 years from now. Nevertheless, I mean, you know, regardless, I mean, we can't even determine 10 days from now. And so we all live with this reality. And yet, do we totally depend upon the one who does know and hold our future? Or, church, do we spend a vast amount of our resources in securing our own tomorrow? And, and I believe that James addresses this very folly in his fourth chapter. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to James's letter, chapter 4, and find verse 13. Now, if you were with us last week, we studied the first 12 verses of this chapter, and we saw together the apostles warning against worldliness or friendship with the world. And for James to love the world's values to desire the world's riches, to covet the world's praise, is to be worldly. And this is to hate God. People who, who pursue, worlds, or pursue worldliness have forsaken God's love, ignored God's word. They've evoked God's wrath. And thus James urges his readers to submit yourselves then to God. Rid yourselves of the pride which God opposes. Humble yourselves. Come near to him in repentance and belief. Recognize your weakness and his omnipotence. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James makes clear that to be worldly isn't cool. God's people ought not to desire to be like the world, to be worldly, but rather we ought to desire to be set apart from the world. And so today we're going to see how James continues this warning, only now, I believe, with a focus upon the sphere of time, upon the sphere of time. So would you follow along now as I read James chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Our author writes, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, here I believe that James introduces his new focus in regards to worldliness with what one commentator describes as an arousing interjection. Now listen, you. You know, the ESV, or if you have a Holman, both read, come now, you. This is a, it's a brusque phrase, and it communicates a sense of urgency. Today, we might say, hey, you. This would be the way in which we'd go about it. It's an attention getter, isn't it? And it's one that another commentator calls the signal for an attack. And the attack that follows, I believe, regards the first point for us today, which is 
what do we know? What do we know? Writing to believers scattered among the nations, James sharply rebukes those who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, and we'll make money. And if we pause right here, I would imagine that there are some of us this morning who are beginning to wonder, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, those of us who are planners, right, who, who have a six-month to 12-month calendar on their wall for the year 2018, right, and who keep reminders on their phones and update office calendars so that others know what's going on and we don't plan activities and events, we don't double book ourselves when some of us are out of the office, people just like me, I'm just kidding, for those of you who don't know me that well, people like my wife, like our office secretaries, like Cotter, right, people who like details, who like making plans, read verse 13 and you guys feel warm fuzzies, don't you? You do, because this is what you do, however... James is angling for an attack. Why? And I believe we find our answer in verse 14, where James explains, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And here in this rebuke, I believe that James exposes two false presumptions reflected by his readers who make the plans that he references back in verse 13. And both of them are based on the fact that these men and women, while diligently preparing their fields, figuratively speaking, which is, just so you'll know, it's a foresight endorsed by God in scriptures like Proverbs 24, 27, but both of these men and women fail to make any mention of God in their plans. Says one pastor theologian writes, what's wrong with this is the plan is made, made in the mind, and it's spoken with the mouth, as James writes, come now you who say, without ever taking a true view of life and God into account. And so the first false presumption then, I believe, regards the future. It regards the future. James states, you say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, when the truth is, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And friends, isn't this the truth? I mean, I know many of you have probably heard our story. That's Melinda and my story. And, and many of us have lived a significant part of this story. That is how we came to be here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. But there are some who have, have not. And so in 2010, Melinda and I were living in Birmingham, Alabama. I was full-time uh, elementary school fundraiser. And my, I was part-time at a missions or a church. I was the missions pastor and I was working to finish seminary. And uh, one, I had a plan. I thought. I was planning to complete seminary. I had my graduation planned out so that it wouldn't interfere with boot camp because I was intending to enter the military as a chaplain. I, I was making my plans six months out, which made my wife very happy. I had my, my, my plans in my calendar all mapped out. We were excited about where we were headed. And then I got a call from a man named Jerry Christiana. Jerry was calling on behalf of Emmanuel's search committee, and he wanted me to come in to visit the church. And I remember getting off the phone call and not being all that excited told Melinda about it, and she was very excited. I said I wasn't. Yeah, I had my plans. Besides, <laughs> Jerry called me back shortly thereafter and told me he jumped the gun. This was very unlike Jerry. I didn't need to get a plane ticket yet because he hadn't yet talked to the rest of his team to get their permission to invite me. But Jerry did, and sure enough, two weeks later, he called, and Melinda and I agreed to come and visit. And our first visit to Salisbury was somewhere in September, I think, and we visited, preached for the committee, met my grandparents, and had a great visit with them. It was a wonderful time. Wonderful people, and we went home to continue planning for chaplaincy, I thought. My little lime green silk was going in the bag, I thought. At least, that's what my plan was. But then Jerry called me back. He said, hey, we want you to come and meet the church this time and preach for everybody. And 
After that visit, Melinda and I left, and I was even less sure about the color of my little silk thing. We went back, and I had a number of reasons why my next city could not be, should not be Salisbury. For one, I wasn't sure about the finances, and we had a house that was no way it was going to move. There were 13 others just like ours already on our street that hadn't moved in over a year. This was back in 2010 when nothing was selling, and I'd already committed to another job. So I had my plans, I, I thought. But then Walter Agnor called, and some of you remember Walter, and he informed me that Emmanuel desired that we come. And my first response was to thank, thank Walter and the church for their kind offer, but unfortunately, I, I just don't think this is going to work out. And I gave Walter all of the reasons, and Walter, as only Walter could, simply informed me that the church would be praying. We promised to do the same. That was in October. And church, by the end, obviously, as you know, by the end of December, we'd moved. We made one phone call to ask how does one move from one place to another in ministry? Who do you tell first? And that one phone call led to the sale of our house. We never put a sign in the yard. We came, found a home, and within a month had moved and settled here. And I, I thought I knew what my future held. I thought I knew what tomorrow held, but God taught me so vividly that I had, I had no clue. And I remember sitting at the light on on, on Mount Hermon and, and Beagland about a month after we'd gotten here, being struck by the fact that I had peace that I could not have conceived of having. And it had to come from God because where I was and what I was doing was completely different than what I had thought I would be doing. Do you, do you think that you know what your tomorrow holds? And are you making plans that reflect that false presumption regarding the future? So the first false presumption that James exposed here pertains to the future. The second regards the uncertainty of human life. The uncertainty of human life. And just right here, let me note that there are some translators. If you have a translation of the NASB, for example, which include that phrase, your life, within the sentence concerning the uncertainty of tomorrow. And this conveys the uncertainty of life's circumstances rather than the uncertainty of life itself. And I believe, as do the majority of other commentators, that this phrase ought to be separate so that it gives a sense of life's fragility. And it's a fact that we then see consistent with the very next sentence where James writes, you are a mist. You appear for a little while and then vanish. And again, church, I don't know that there's a person here who would argue this point. What is man? What is woman? What guarantees do we have regarding life? And I would imagine that every one of us knows someone whose life was tragically cut short. And as I alluded to in our prayer earlier, not a one of us would have thought on Friday at 2 or 1 o'clock, we would be celebrating the life of Mary Webb. Not a one of us. A week earlier, we would have never conceived that this could be what the future held. And yet, that's where we were. Praise God, he wasn't surprised by it. But friends, I believe we all know someone like this, where the end of life comes so quickly, and it just reminds us of how tenuous life is. And yet again, do we live like this? Now, I fear that all too often we may acknowledge these truths, but we don't live like we appreciate them, do we? Meaning we don't live with a sense of urgency, of concern for things eternal. Rather, we live like we have all the time in the world. Well, I'll get to that. I'll make decisions regarding faith in my time, because I've got time. You know, about a month ago, I had a conversation with a very good friend. He's attended our church before, and, and he, he was pretty shaken. He'd received a phone call earlier that week from one of his workers. And a young man, one of their crew, was headed home with their team, and something blew off the back of their pickup truck, and they pulled over to remove it from the road. And as they did, someone tried to pass during rush hour around the side of their vehicle and hit this young man going about 55 miles an hour. Now, miraculously, this young man lived. 
But my friend was shaken, obviously shaken, but concerned because he's trying to wrap his mind around the reality of life's brevity. Guys, if, if, if all we have to cling to is material, temporal, visceral, then we're grasping at tr- straws if we're seeking lasting significance. And that's why I believe James asks, what do you know? What do you know? And then he points out what God knows. He points out what God knows. Look back with me to verse 15. Here James contrasts what we know, I believe, with what that which God knows. As he writes, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And in this verse, much like we saw in the previous, I believe that James tells us two things about God's knowing that offset the two false presumptions that we're inclined to make. And the first thing regards our life's circumstances, and that is its length. Our life's circumstances, meaning its length. God knows how long we will be here in the flesh, living and breathing. And, and all of Scripture attests to this. We see this in David as he writes in Psalm 139. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Job, replying to his detractors, similarly declares in chapter 14, Job 14:5, that man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have, don't miss this, set limits he cannot exceed. And just in case we were to think that these were only Old Testament references. In the New Testament, Paul informs the Ephesians that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. And then again, in his second letter, or first letter rather, to Timothy chapter 6, he adds that God gives life to everything. In our Sunday school hour this morning, I was in Mike's class, and we saw out of Acts where the Apostle Paul is in Athens, and he informs the Athenians that God doesn't need you. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. Rather, he is and gives life and everything to everyone. So James, being consistent with the teaching of all of Scripture, states that God knows whether we'll live or not. And friends, I believe that this stands to reason. If we worship a God who's omniscient, meaning he knows everything, and our Bible establishes this unequivocally, stating it in numerous places, numerous ways. Job 37, 16 as an example, where God is the one who is perfect in knowledge. 1 John 3, 20, where the apostle states that God knows everything. And further, the apostle Paul gets in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and writes that God's spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So God not only knows everything that there is to know external to himself, but he also knows himself perfectly. And so church, if this is how God knows, then logically he must know the length of our lives. I mean, what kind, what kind of a God would he be if he didn't know something as significant as our life's length? Now, there are some today who hold what's come to be known as open theism. Open theism. And for open theists, God's omniscience extends not to what will actually happen, but only to that which might happen. In other words, they believe that God knows all the possible choices that lie before you and all the potential outcomes for whatever decision you actually make. But the one thing that God can't know, doesn't know, is what you want. This remains a mystery. Thus, God can't know the exact date on which you might die, your life might end, but he does know how it might end if you happen to make the life choice that will result in that end. Now, in addition to simply being illogical, in my opinion, what's, a f- what's frightening to me about open theism is its attempt 
to limit God while empowering the human person to suggest that there are things that only we can control and that God can't even know? Isn't that the very thing that James has warned us against here? Of thinking that today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city? How, how can God not know these things? And why would we, better question, why would we bother worshiping a God who couldn't know? I mean, seriously, what would be the point? And, and I realize that open theists argue that this, this protects, this concept of God in this way protects our autonomy. It, it guards us from being mere robots with no input into the outcome of our lives. If God knows everything, then really, where is our freedom? But friends, and here I can only answer for myself, but I know myself and, and how little I know of myself. I'm constantly learning more about myself. And can I tell you that none of it is good? I am not free in my decision-making. I am a slave to my passions and desires. Just to confess, I have never chosen to eat a candy bar without some tantalizing temptation from somewhere. I've never snuck off or tried to sneak off in my home to take a nap without a sense of intense fatigue. And I, and I have never bought something on a whim without some visceral input from some advertiser telling me that I need this useless piece of equipment. The, the point is, if God doesn't know these things, then how can he control these things? And if he can't control these things, what guarantees can he give us as we face them? And if he can't assure us of anything unless we make the right decisions, then what can he offer us that we can't bring about on our own? And I believe the answer is nothing. Church, this isn't the God of Scripture. The God that Jesus told us knows what we need before we even ask and for whom even the hairs on our heads are numbered. God knows our life circumstances and our lives experiences, meaning the exact details of that dash that goes between the dates on your tombstone. James says, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or that. And the this or that there is the activities of our lives and, and their success or failure all rests According to James, in the Lord's will. As one pastor theologian explained, James teaches us here that the activities and accomplishments of our lives are in God's hands. God governs what we accomplish. Not only are our lives in his hands, our successes are in his hands. And church, I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in this truth. And yet I know that this isn't the case for many. It might even not be the case for some of us here this morning. For some, for some, to claim that God is sovereign and as such in control of our lives' experiences is descriptive of a, of a slavish existence in which we have no say. I mean, clearly we can't be free, but friends, I have no problem with such an understanding where God is in complete control. And I want to give you five reasons this morning why. Five reasons as to why, all taken from the book of James as we walked through this book together, where the first is this, the Bible says so. The Bible says so. You can call me old-fashioned, conservative, and inerrantist, a Christian, but I believe that if God says it, it must be true. And James warns us against thinking that we know the future and our life circumstances when God is the one who knows. And so I'm cool, I'm cool with God knowing because the Bible says so. Number one, I'm also cool with such a belief because God is wise. In James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 5, James encourages us to count trials as what? Joy. And to persevere in their midst. Why? Because God uses them to test and strengthen our faith. And then James goes on to urge us to ask God when we find ourselves lacking wisdom. Why? Because he gives it to all generously. God is wise. And he is the source of all wisdom. And friends, if God is wise, 
as the scriptures declare, then I can rest in the knowledge that my circumstances, while seemingly contrary to what I may desire, must be working towards an outcome that I can't yet grasp, but which is consistent with God's wisdom because he is the source of all wisdom. Further, God isn't only wise, the Bible doesn't only say so, but God is good and he's perfect. In verse 17 of chapter 1, James told us that every good and perfect gift is from above. So if every good thing that I've ever received came from God, then I am quite content to rest in the knowledge that he's in control of my life. If, if God is good then, and perfect, then what do I have to fear? If God is good, can he be against me? And, and if God is perfect, can he lie to me? No, I'm in complete peace in knowing that God is sovereign over my life because the Bible says he is. He's wise, he's good, he's perfect. And fourth, he isn't tempted by nor does he tempt anyone with evil. According to James in chapter 1, verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. So, if God is good and perfect and he can't be tempted by evil or tempt me with it, then what do I have to fear from God and his control over my life? And I believe there is an answer, and that answer is his justice. Because if I'm the one who errs, who isn't good, and isn't, is far from perfect, according to James, I'm drug away and enticed by my own evil desires. I believe that there are many people who are put off by the thought of God's sovereignty because they can't stand the thought of not being in control. And they're frightened by the thought that they'll be judged for their actions. Friends, this is a frightening thought. It is a horrifying thought. If, if the only hope we had was in our ability to obey God's law, to be good or at least more good than bad, what a nightmare life would be if every day we woke up with the pressure of having to be perfect to merit God's love and protection. But thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans 7, we don't fulfill the law in our own strength. No one can. What wretched people we are, he says. Who can rescue us from our bodies of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, the good news is that God has accomplished all of this for us. And he did it while we were still sinners. He didn't make his great love available based upon the possibility that we might choose certain things, but knowing that we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. No, he sent Christ to fulfill his laws and then die in our place so that he might be both just and the one who justifies. This is the gospel. And friends, I hope and pray that you've experienced this good news and that you've been set free from sin because I have no issues with the reality of God's sovereignty in my life because the Bible states it. Because God is wise, he's good and he's perfect, because he isn't tempted by, nor does he tempt me with evil. And then fifth, because he's promised those who love him a crown of life. He's promised those who love him a crown of life. What a promise. If God is working everything out to this glorious end as he's promised, why would I have a problem with his sovereignty over my life? Just think about it. I mean, do you know anyone, anyone who wouldn't want the gift of eternal life? I mean, isn't this the goal of every man-made religion, to attain eternal life? And I'm, I'm not describing life as we currently know it, only in perpetuity. That would be a nightmare for some. But rather, this, this idea of a glorious utopia where there's no sadness or, or pain or, or suffering. Do you, do you know anybody that would say, nah, 
I'm not really all that interested in living eternally with all the wealth in the world. No, comfort and ease for eternity, that just doesn't appeal to me. I mean, who in their right mind, who in their right mind would say, you know, I've got a serious problem with God being in the know about my life's length and experiences, but, you know, I am cool with this idea of a gift that he's promised me at its end. Clearly, the answer is someone who isn't in their right mind. I mean, this would be like someone James, I believe, describes in verse 26 of chapter 1, who considers themselves religious, but in fact is only deceiving themselves. Why? Because their religion is worthless. This is the person who desires to retain personal sovereignty and still get in on God's promise of eternity. And guys, this just can't be. We've seen through James's entire letter as he makes clear faith works, meaning practically that if we love Jesus, we'll do what he says, not what we want, but what he's commanded us to do. If you love me, you'll do what I say. True faith works, not so that we can obtain God's promises, but rather because we are already the recipients of God's promises. And so church, I pray that each and every one of us has been reminded in this moment of God's great love for us as demonstrated in Jesus and of how little we know and how much our God knows. Because as James goes on and makes clear, verse 16, all boasting of knowing is sin. All boasting of knowing is sin. And sadly, this was the state of James's original readers. He writes there, as it is, you boast and brag. So rather than what they ought to say, which would have reflected a right appreciation of God's knowing, James's readers were boasting and bragging. And the word that James used here in verse 16, translated as boast, is one that he uses earlier in chapter 1 and verse 9 to describe the pride that a brother in humble circumstances ought to take in his standing before God. Only here, it refers to the attitude where, as one commentator describes it, this pride has magnified the big I, me in place of God's grace. Such an arrogance in the self, in the self's sovereignty, James declares, is evil. And so he concludes by admonishing his readers, writing, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And so clearly James's readers knew the good that they should have been doing. He knew what they were referring to. They knew, and they were willfully sinning. They were guilty of the sin of omission, the very sin that Jesus addressed in his parable of the tenants that's recorded by Luke in chapter 19. It's there, if you recall, that the servant who knew what his master desired of him and yet didn't do it eventually has everything he had taken from him. Friends, I, I pray that we will guard our hearts from the attitude displayed by James's original readers. May we be humble. May we recognize that God and God alone is sovereign, that he knows the length of all our days and all of our success lies in his hands. May we recognize the tendency, our tendency, our sinful flesh's tendency to boast in our accomplishments. And to this end, as I was writing this message, I was convicted because God has done so much for us over these last eight years, hasn't he, church? I mean, so many things. We have, we have seen <coughs> so many exciting things take place. It would be easy for us in this moment to boast in our tomorrow, to speak about the plans that we're making, the little lime green silk thing that we're putting in our, hope, in our hopes while forgetting to use the phrase, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. Now, I know that it's the Lord's will for us to continue to grow in conformity to Christ and that we be one as God, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one. And so I, praise as we, I pray as we close 
that it would be God's will to continue to bless us, church, that we would be one, that we would continue to live in light of the reality which is ours as we are in relationship with Jesus, and that he would continue to bless us so that we might bring him glory as we live in light of these truths and we proclaim the gospel. Our faith might work. But if you're here this morning and you don't know these promises, if you're not standing on the hope that Christ is your Savior and that one day when you are confronted with the end, which will come for all, you don't know when, if you don't have hope and it's not in Jesus, then I would, I would love to talk with you about how that can change today. It might be that you woke up this morning with no plans but just coming to church, ticking the box and getting back to the next things that you had in the course of your life. And yet God had intended something totally different. I hope and pray that's true for you this morning. But for all of us who know Christ, that we've been encouraged and reminded that we need be humble and continue to seek to live in unity with one another as we live out the gospel so that the communities that are around us, those whom with, with whom we work and interact, would know the hope and joy that we have. And so would you pray with me to that end as we close? Father, you are good. And you know our tomorrow. Father, it's so easy for us to think that we know. And it would be so easy for us to leave this place and think that we're called not to make plans, not to prepare, and yet we know that's not true either. Father, we ought to make plans. We ought to prepare. We ought to, to, to plead for your guidance and direction. And as we get prepared, Lord, we do so saying, if it is the Lord's will, knowing that we hold our plans loosely, and that you at any moment might change the direction of those plans. And if you do so, God, we admit that it will be for our good and your glory, and we will accept it. While it won't be easy because of the pride that we have, Lord, we admit that it will be for our good. Lord, in this last week, as we've seen, a church has been praying faithfully for its ill. Miss Mary was one, and we prayed faithfully, God, that you would heal. And you did, simply not as we had intended. And yet, God, Mary has been healed completely. And for this, we give you praise. Father, would you help us to see that your way is always best and that there is never any circumstance in our lives that falls outside of your sovereignty. For if you have promised us the crown of life, those who love you, then, Lord, the circumstances that lead us to the reception of that crown all fall under your guidance and direction. Father, might we live in light of that reality? Might we allow your word to direct our lives, to give us the comfort and the, the, the correction that we need? Father, might we not trust in ourselves? Lord, and if there is one of us this morning that has a concept of God that we have created that is not consistent with your word, Father, if we conceive of you as this great grandfather in the sky who someday will overlook our shortcomings and just give us what grandfathers ought to give us, which are gifts without consequence. Father, might we see as we've looked today that this isn't consistent with Scripture. This is an untenable view. Lord, and if we think that you're a God who is holy and just and great but has just left his creation to work itself out on its own, Lord, that this isn't tenable either. For in the scriptures, we see how intimately you have interacted with your creation as you came. God the Son, Jesus, like us in every way, yet without sin, who lived among us, 
and went to the cross on our behalf, was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. Father, a God who is distant and uninvolved is not who you are. Father, thank you that the God we serve knows and cares about us. Father, if there are any who have had these misconceptions, a God who we believe we can scratch his back and he'll scratch ours. We can come to church and do these things, pray and give our tithe and that you'll then are obligated to bless us because we've blessed you. Again, this is not the God of the Bible, but it's by your sovereign grace that we have relationship with you. Father, I pray that if there is one this morning who does not have that hope, that you would have opened their eyes having heard the gospel. Father, that you would lead them to, to make public their desire to repent of their sin, to believe that you are Jesus, the Son of God, and that they might confess you as their Lord. But what a, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful life transformation. And what a difference this day will have than that which they had thought they would. Lord, we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as we close, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk with you, but let's sing together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's sing together.